Hello and welcome to Matters of Experience. My name is Abigail Honor. Hello, I'm Brenda Cowan. Welcome to this week's podcast, Museums and War. We are thrilled to be speaking with Yasminka Halilovic, founder and managing director of the War Childhood Museum in Sarajevo, Bosnia-Herzegovina, the world's only museum dedicated to children affected by armed conflict. Since the museum's opening in 2016, Yasminka has been expanding the War Childhood Museum exhibitions, taking them around the world to places where children's lives are being altered due to war and conflict, like Kiev in the Ukraine. Yasminka, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Yasminka, I'm going to get us kick-started with just a, a very fond remembrance of my own meeting you just as you were opening. And I remember so well the spirits of you and your staff being so strong and so confident. Starting from the first seed idea for the War Childhood Museum, where did the idea come from? And given that it takes tenacity, determination, and a little luck, how confident were you that you would succeed? Yes, I think you said as well, it takes some determination, but also some luck. I think we had both. Since the very beginning, we were very confident. However, it was not always easy and smooth journey. Just a couple of days ago, I stumbled upon an article about uh, the museum from this period. And the first sentence in the article is, Yasmin Kohalilovic is tired. So it was funny to me that the journalist uh, used this as the first sentence in the article. And I think it's, uh, it sums up well that we were really exhausted creating the, uh, creating anything, but especially creating a museum, which is community centered and around uh, such, um, such a topic, which, which carries some gravity with it. Uh, I think it's a really, uh, demanding process. Uh, but, uh, if you take this as your mission, if you take it as something that has to happen, then I think, uh, regardless of challenges, it will happen and it happened in our case. And, uh, today we are very lucky, um, uh, with the fact that we succeeded. But, uh, even before the museum existed, uh, for us, this was not the question if we would get there. It was only the question how to get there. Why for you, you know, Yasminka, we only walked this way once. What, what made you like, tell us a little bit maybe about your history or why did you decide to focus and devote your life to the War Childhood Museum? Well, it's uh, both easy and not easy answer. The easy part is obviously that I'm also part of this generation and uh, the generation whose childhood has been affected uh, by the Bosnian War. And uh, this is obviously the very straightforward explanation why I'm interested in the, into the topic. However, on the other hand, I had nothing to do with museums in my life. So the museum as a, as a medium, as a tool, uh, is not so straightforward for me. I was involved with culture. Uh, and actually, I started this project with the, with the desire to do the book about this experience. And I did the book. But through the process of creating the book, uh, I started communicating with people. And I understood that there is something around objects, that they tend to connect their memories to objects. And that, that's how the idea for the museum was born. I'm wondering if for our listeners who aren't familiar with the unusual way that the museum started, if you could just give us a description of the rather brilliant book project that you're describing about objects and their stories from war survivors. So the easiest way to imagine this book for someone who never saw it would be to imagine the collection of feet, because uh, this was the format of the book. It was uh, 2010 when I started the project and I limited uh, people's answers to 160 characters. So very similar to tweets. And uh, more than 1,000 people responded and I made a mosaic of these shorter collections. 
So that's actually the concept of the book. And that's the reason why the community was created around the book. And out of these interactions, the idea for the museum was born. Well, this is the first time, actually, Brenda, that I've ever heard of a museum coming out of a book so directly in this way and absolutely poetic and wonderful. And I love the idea of, you know, limiting the number of characters to get feedback because then you get feedback, right? The gateway to admission is a lot easier than if you want expect people to write these long, copious stories. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. Now, the title is very arresting, War Childhood Museum. It really makes me sort of pause and take a moment to think deeper about what it represents. But why, why didn't you call it something like the Children's War Museum or maybe Children Affected by War? You know, why did you name it War Childhood Museum? Okay, it's, it's not Children's Museum. When we say Children's Museum, someone would assume it's for children only, and this is not the case. I, I wanted the name to be pretty straightforward. Some people told me the word has uh, some uh, difficult meaning with it. The brand, the corporations will not uh, will not be uh, very happy to be associated with it and stuff like this. But I wanted the name to really represent what the museum is. And it's not only childhood in war, it's also childhood affected by war. And just to touch upon what you mentioned, the museum created from the book, there is one very famous example in Europe. Orhan Pamuk is a Nobel Prize winning uh, novelist. And his novel, Museum of Innocence, was turned by him into a brilliant museum of innocence in Istanbul. And uh, that was uh, one of the most inspiring case studies I witnessed while I was taking this similar journey on a very different topic in different way. But there is one thing which I think Museum of Innocence and the War Childhood Museum share. And this is the focus on very personal stories of, uh, let's say, ordinary people. And this is something Orhan Pamuk mentioned in his manifesto for museums. He says, it's not a big challenge to tell the histories of nations or countries, but what we need to do is to tell the stories of people. And this is also at the heart of the War Child Museum's mission. One of the things that I particularly appreciate about the War Childhood Museum book is that it is the reality of people all around the world and in the voices of so many different people. And the stories that you wanted to tell were really the stories of the people who contributed to the book and who contributed, frankly, their own vulnerabilities, their own spirits and their own souls to the development of the museum. I'm wondering, can you talk to us about how it is that the museum evolved over the years since you've opened its doors with those initial stories? Uh, the museum evolved a lot. Of course, in the scope of its activities, we were born in one context in Bosnia, and then we expanded. Now we have projects in over 10 countries, I guess. Then uh, also our collection grew. Now it includes objects and stories from uh, different places, uh, different conflicts. And then, uh, obviously, all of other activities evolved as well, like our peace education program, our interactions with the community. There was a lot of change, but maybe the biggest change was within our team as well. We were a group of people with no previous experience in museums. So I think over the years, of course, being exposed to the industry, being part of the industry, getting some awards within the industry, I think that all of this helped us to understand better how powerful museums can be and how we have huge opportunities to interact with audiences in so many different ways. And we are really trying to use this and to connect even more with people and to connect people with our collections and also to connect people with other people through our museum. Lara Mipsum has worked on a number of tough subjects in museums, tackling the content of war and survivors. I always find it's incredibly difficult. You have to understand the societal and the global nuances of the stories being told. And it's often very complex, especially when you're creating museums around the world. 
deciding what angles of a story to highlight and whose voices and how is really at the heart of a successful museum experience. How did you adapt the book into a museum? How did you choose which stories to tell and how to tell them? Because obviously in a, a book is a very different medium to a museum. Could you take us through that process? Yes, of course. Uh, during the work on the book, people already submitted some uh, personal belongings by email. They would say, can you publish this in the book as well? This was not part of the plan because the book was meant to be only a collection of these short memories. But then, inspired by these emails, I added the third part of the book where I already showed some of these personal belongings and uh, stories that, that explain them and their meaning. And this transfer from the book to the museum was actually, for me, very natural process. There was nothing strange in it. Uh, of course, the focus shifted more towards the object, but we certainly remain and we, we still are a platform to tell these stories and the objects are there only to illustrate the stories. And of course, there is a special dynamics around these objects and the way that visitors interact with them. And that's why I think museums are so powerful because you really are able to witness in front of your eyes uh, part of someone's history. And this is uh, this can be very, very powerful. Who was your target audience for the museum? Who were, who were you ideally targeting as a visitor? It's a, we are a small museum, but we have very broad audience. And uh, as a small museum, we cannot have like a special exhibition for each target group, but we have to communicate all all target groups with one exhibition. And of course, there are a couple of special target groups within the general public, which we specially target. It's uh, survivors themselves, people who share this experience. This is very important for us because I think uh, museums such as ours, it doesn't make too much sense to have these museums if they are not accepted by the community. So my biggest fear maybe was what will be the feedback. And immediately after the first temporary exhibition, I was there every day talking to people. And after this one, I was certain this is a good idea and it should be a permanent museum. And then, of course, the new generation for our peace education programs. We work with hundreds of schools, thousands of children every year. And this is specifically important for us because, as you know, around the world, there is so much tension and so much polarization in the society. So we want to be one additional voice for peace. And I think this is a critical part of our mission as well. I was able to do a study with you about the impact that was happening on people and specifically when they were seeing the objects and engaging with the objects in your collection. And you are directly contributing to people's mental health, to their well-being, and you're enabling people to heal. And I think that that's just an important thing to sort of add in there. The level of depth that we're talking about here is rather extraordinary and it's risky and it's working very well. I agree. I continuously and consistently get this feedback that the fact that you are able to tell your story, to donate your object, to contribute your object to the collection, to have it exhibited to a broad audience, that this can have some kind of healing effect. And we are very proud of this. There are so many beautiful stories of people deciding to come back for the first time to their home city because of our work or reconnecting with some family members or starting some discussions that they never could start otherwise. So this is very rewarding and this is what keeps us moving forward and this is very central to our work. So for some of our listeners, can you take us through a few of the objects and the stories that move you? Yeah, there are many. We have now more than 5,000 objects from 20 different armed conflicts. So there are many, many different stories. I don't know which one to <laughs> to pick now. 
people are sometimes surprised because when they see the title, the name of our museum, they always expect only dark stories and only sad stories. But we also have beautiful stories about friendship, about love, about learning, about play, stories that make you laugh. We have a very diverse objects and belongings from some that highlight the creativity of children during war, for example, the ballet shoes or guitar or some other musical instruments like violin. And then we have like some very basic things you use at your home, like radio or or even we have even a laptop. So like many, many different things in this diverse collection and the focus is on the story that this person tells. And this story is sometimes completely connected to the object and sometimes just mentions the object. So this uh, diversity of voices is something what's the most beautiful about our collection. And even after 5,000 objects, I still get surprised by what people choose to contribute and uh, how they tell their stories. And now we see some shift, for example, with Ukraine and some contemporary conflicts. We see a shift uh, in our collection towards digital objects. Uh, for example, during the Bosnian war, no one had that smartphone and you couldn't uh, produce your own video or photograph or something like that. But now we get many digital objects because kids have smartphones and they are taking photos and videos. So there is, if you look at from this perspective, some changes that happen with time. When talking about the objects that are shared in the particular stories and the fact that they they aren't all sad, that a lot of them are affiliated, like you said, with play and with moments of childhood that are uplifting and enjoyable. And I remember speaking with some visitors to the museum who were almost excited to see some of the childhood toys and even some, you know, little wrappers from candies that they were familiar with and that they had had as children. And the response was one of familiarity and of connection. And that's something that I think is really underscored by the work that you're doing is that the stories and through the objects that you're sharing are relevant to us all and they're important to us all. And I think that it's a brilliant example of the relevance of a museum on the most intimate level. Another thing is also the universality of these objects, because when you are familiar with something, it's easier to understand, to get the message, to connect. If you can connect it to your own childhood, then you can better understand the narrative. So I think this is something that helps us to communicate our collection. Uh, and I think this universality is beautiful because wherever we go in the world with our exhibitions uh, is the same. People still can recognize some things and they connect with them. Is there a way that visitors can tell their stories, their personal stories, when they're actually inside the museum? Yes, at the entrance of the museum, they are interacting with our staff. And if they mention that they also share this experience, they are invited to access our website and to share their memories as well. This happens regularly, yes. Oh, that's lovely. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the challenges that museums need to consider and that you might be experiencing when seeking to expand in new ways and into new places. It's always challenging. It's particularly challenging, I think, if you are coming from the developing markets and countries, as we do, because then everything is expensive and many things are out of reach. But the biggest challenge here is actually different contexts some cultural differences, and how to establish trust wherever you go. And this is why we rely a lot on local expertise. 
wherever we have projects, we always just support local people to implement projects for their community. And I think this is critical because it's much easier to build the trust with the community if local people are doing it. Aside from the trust and the relationship with the community, of course, logistics are always the the challenge. You need to do a lot of fundraising. You need to do human resources. But I would say logistics, money, resources, everything is uh, possible to solve if you have a good foundation. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your recent speaking engagement at ICOM's conference. This was in Prague, and it was when ICOM launched its new definition of what a museum is. And this is a hotly anticipated definition. So as the founder of a museum dedicated to social change, societal well-being, Can you share your thoughts on this new museum definition? Do you think it captures what it is that the profession needs to be? You know, I think the the question of the new definition of museums is not an easy discussion because obviously it's a huge industry and uh, hundreds of thousands of museum professionals around the world are trying to contribute to it or to discuss it. And if you ask even five different people from the museum industry to, to put together a definition, you will get five different definitions. I knew and it's uh, very clear that it's impossible to create a definition that everyone would be happy with. With the definition which, which was in the end established, I think it more or less captures well uh, some of the concepts. I think it doesn't speak about the future. I think museums are not only places where we document past and discuss presence. I think we also can imagine our futures in these places. I think the word future is missing from the definition. Uh, I also don't like some words which were included, like a non-for-profit. This is the first. The definition starts with a museum is a not-for-profit a permanent institution. I, I don't think this should be... Uh, this should be like it. Uh, I think that beautiful initiatives can be for profit as well. I think uh, by enabling museums also to be for profit, I think this also gives some additional fuel to the industry because then there is more motivation for entrepreneurs, founders and others to engage with the industry and create something interesting or like new concept experiments and, and, and other things. So, so I don't know why it's so critical to be a non-board profit. I think it's really interesting when the current newly revised definition includes inclusivity, equity, accessibility, transformation, and yet they're being specific to not-for-profits. I think that that challenges their very own definition. Even the concepts that you mentioned now, the sustainability, the inclusivity, accessibility, diversity, all of these standards, this is not imposed by the definition. This is something we already created in our institution. And then the definition only confirms this. And that's why I don't think that the definition is here to show the way. I think the definition is here to acknowledge what we already built. Yes, overall, I completely agree. I think the definition comes on the heels of what good museums are actually already doing. I feel it's pretty long overdue. I mean, two years thing, a lot of changes in two years and ICOM far from leading is reacting to pressures to modernize. So I, I'd like to see them leading a little bit more. And as you said, that non-for-profit and there's a few other things in there that, you know, open to discussion. The other thing I had an idea of, well, why does it matter anyway? As, as you mentioned, Yasminka, it didn't stop you creating what's Sounds to me, and I know what Brenda's enjoyed, an incredible experience. Brenda, from your perspective, is it irrelevant what ICOM calls a museum? I don't know if it's not, you know, whether or not it's leading the charge per se. And I have to say, I definitely agree with both you and Yasmingo that this is work that museums have been doing for a long time. I think putting the language together is essential. I think that it's important to have some kind of a 
a handrail, especially for new institutions. But even as our existing and our sort of venerated old institutions are doing strategic work and reframing their own missions, I do think that these messages of inclusivity and equity, the call to sustainability, it's important to have these reminders out there. It's making me think about when um, the Smithsonian Secretary, uh, Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who really led this charge, was leading this moment to reimagine institutions and relationships with audiences, business models, the way that museums serve their countries and communities. He said that ultimately all of our job is to define reality and to give hope and to challenge our institutions to be places of inspiration, curiosity, learning. I think very importantly to be places of listening and of course to be the voices of their audiences. And personally coming from the world of design, I can tell you, man, there's a lot of work to be done just to aspire to that level of thinking. Yes, Minko, with all of this in mind, I'm curious what you think museums can do to help raise greater awareness, specifically in your world, about war children. How can people participate in making a difference? And, you know, what kind of responsibility to, do our museums need to take? Yeah, I think it's not only about the topic we deal with. I think it's about any important topic or cause in our societies. I think there is something what I call the shared responsibility of the whole industry. I think any museum can find its own way to contribute. And I think for this century, we are currently in one of the biggest things museums will need to stand for together is equality and human rights. And this is why I think this is a shared challenge. And I'm very very happy to see museums engaging with these causes. Seems to me that you're very entrepreneurial and have always sort of trodden along your own path, despite what other people may have said. For others listening who may doubt themselves, as we all do, what words of encouragement would you give them for going along their own path, having the courage to continue along and have that vision while other people may say, oh, don't do that. You shouldn't do that. That won't work. Yeah, as someone who created a museum, people get in touch with me when they want to create museums. What they all have in common is none of them go to check uh, museum definition. So they have their own idea, they have their own vision of what they want to create, and I think this is good. I think we should not be blinded by what already exists or how someone imagines the industry should be or these places should be. When I decided to create the World Travel Museum, I knew nothing about museums. I was just an average museum visitor. But then you learn and you navigate. I think there has to be some kind of source of special motivation. Creating a museum is not a short journey and there are no easy answers. It's like any startup. I want to say even if you create 10 startups, the 11th one will come with some questions you never answered. So that's how it also is a museum because it's a place that interacts with so many communities, so many audiences. It's a place which carries so much gravity for people. People trust museums. They have high expectations from museums. So it's not something that you can do as a side activity. This is what I tried, but then it, it became my not only full-time job, but also the main preoccupation in life. So it's something you really need if you want to make it happen from scratch. You really need to devote yourself to it. You need to be ready to give everything you have. And I think with that kind of approach, I think you can create anything in life, including a museum. I completely agree. Very inspiring words, Yasminka. So what's next for you? What's next for the museum? Tell us some of the things you're looking forward to over the next, I'll keep it small, next few years. 
Yes, uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I currently I, I try to work towards our 2030 goals, and uh, uh, we have 2030 strategy. And uh, what we are doing continuously is expanding our collections. We want our collection to include objects and stories from any major conflict which happened after the Second World War. Also, with our peace education programs, we are now working to expand them globally, and not to work with hundreds of schools and thousands of uh, students, but to work with thousands of schools and maybe millions of students. Uh, so this is the path uh, we are following, and I'm confident uh, that the World Childhood Museum will become an international platform for everyone and will reach millions around the world. Yasmin, could you have any plans to bring the exhibit over to the U.S.? Yes, we opened a very small office in New York City recently. We plan to start documenting and collecting and creating our U.S. collection and then doing some temporary exhibitions, and then we will see. But yes, this is the plan. Yes, Minko, listening to you, I can only say that I believe wholeheartedly that you in your institution will indeed become this global platform for dialogue, for sharing, for hope, and for promise. And I want to give you a hearty appreciation for all that you do and for all that you're continuing to do. Thank you so much. And thank you for mentioning the word hope. This is something what's uh, very important for me. And this is something what I really believe will stay consistent in the feedback we get. Because now when I take our guest book, I see this word very often and I want it to, to stay like that. It's been amazing to chat with you, Yasminka. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Take care. Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp. Please tune in next week for another conversation. Thank you all for listening.